Hello and welcome to Double Take, the Mellon podcast. I'm your co-host, Rafe Lewis, Director of Investigative Investment Research here at Mellon. And I'm your other co-host and investigative researcher, Jack Encarnacio. On this edition of Double Take, the 2020 U.S. federal elections and what they mean for investors. Now, I know, I know, you've been seeing news stories and podcasts about the elections ad nauseum. But this one's different because we're taking on the quadrennial fun by looking backwards and forwards. That's right, Jack. And uh, we're delighted to have Mellon's passionate and erudite Jeffrey Berger here to explain how all the electoral fund will impact fixed income investors, specifically those of you who park your money in the municipal bond markets. But wait, there's more. I always wanted to say that. wish we could, uh, I don't know, give our listeners a set of steak knives or something, but it's not to be. Uh, we will also have a good long chat today with Richard Silla from New York University, who is, I think, it's safe to say, America's preeminent markets historian. And he'll discuss how previous elections have played out in the equity and fixed income markets and what those lessons pretend for all of us in 2020 and beyond. Quick note before we uh, start here, I, I just want to remind folks that we are coming to you from our home offices, so please excuse any dog barks, cat meows, kids screams, you know, doorbells, etc. Uh, so let's give a little background. So I had the pleasure of moderating an event for Mellon's interns recently that featured Jeff, and what struck me is that this is a fellow who really knows his way around a muni bond, and I'm talking specifically why they're floated, how they're floated everything about demand and supply for them, you name it. This is someone who is steeped in this. And I think it's because he spent most of his life thinking about the public sector, what drives it, how it's funded, how politics impacts it. He did his uh, undergraduate and graduate studies at Syracuse University and ultimately obtained his Master of Public Administration. And, you know, he was contemplating a uh, career in the public sector before he ultimately ended up making a career out of trading on the loans that they need their uh, sector's work. But since then, you know, he's worked at Fitch Ratings, Columbia Management, and for the last decade or so here at Mellon. Jeff, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. Much better for us than for you. So, you know, why don't we just start big picture here for a second? What's at stake in these elections for muni bond investors? I mean, do the outcomes change dramatically, whether it's four more years of Donald Trump or four new years of Joe Biden? You know, I appreciate the question because it really gives an opportunity to what I would suggest and the team at Mellon would suggest is really the longstanding background of this asset class to persevere through various not only economic cycles, but political cycles. And it's not to suggest that there obviously are different implications for various markets, municipals included, depending on who is elected president come November. But the most likely outcomes under either presidency, whether it's infrastructure spend, the implications of tax policy, because taxes are very important when it comes to municipal bond investing, there's a case to be made under both presidencies that a favorable outcome to support this asset class in terms of potential return uh, exists under both. And, and we can explore that, too, if you, if you would like. Well, Jeff, I'd like to start maybe if we could um, at the onset of the current administration. And maybe that'll help us and our listeners understand kind of how to read political outcomes through a muni lens. So Trump took office 2016. We ended up with like a surge in buying, like almost $4 trillion in municipal bond market, the municipal bond market at about $4 trillion, a surge there, uh, large inflows into mutual funds. They ended up calling it the Trump trade, uh, I guess yeah. we could say. Could you take us through what's happened the past four years if it met the market's expectations and uh, how we can game the outcome along political lines on the other side, perhaps? Absolutely. Well, you know, this market does aim to please. And as you as you suggested earlier, the, the implications from – Trump's presidency were pretty profound on the municipal bond market. And it gets back to one of the points I was driving at earlier, which is what do taxes mean and how do they matter to municipal bond investors? And make no mistake, there's a lot of different reasons that Americans and, and even folks across shore now, because you're seeing a lot of foreign investment into this asset class, but really concentrating on Americans, specifically taxpaying Americans, one of the primary reasons they buy a municipal bond is the tax-free nature of it. And when the Tax Cut and Job Act was passed, I believe it was December of 2017 or so, effectively what it did in one of the rules in there as part of the, the law was it capped the amount of federal tax exemption from what Americans had already paid in state and local taxes. Well, think about that for a second. If you're 
somebody who lives in one of the, the affluent areas, let's just say Westchester County, New York, or suburban San Francisco, what have you, who pays a heck of a lot more than $10,000 in state and local taxes, you're kind of frustrated. You're frustrated that you're not able to deduct that from your federal tax bill. And so what a lot of investors across our country have done is look for other ways to sort of shelter their taxable income. And guess what? One of the few standout investments that remains post uh, the Tax Reform Act that provides some tax advantage for American taxpayers are municipal bonds. And so what we observed is really 61 straight weeks, over $120 billion of mutual fund inflows into this asset class, truly unprecedented in terms of size and scope. And uh, we would suggest one of the reasons you saw such demand from retail investors in the country was because of the tax cut and job act. Again, that's associated with what Trump was got through Congress in terms of tax policy changes. And I would say this, there's another implication of the, the presidency that that likely impacted our market. President Trump, as part of his uh, his his campaign on an infrastructure program in the country. And to the extent that infrastructure is really funded in the United States by municipal bonds, it really generated greater market awareness, greater interest in the asset class, et cetera. Now, clearly, the infrastructure program hasn't manifested itself for a, a plethora of reasons. But all that being said, the type of attention paid to municipal bonds and the need for infrastructure in this country had from a thematic perspective some residency in the in the marketplace and we would argue additionally increased demand for for municipal bonds jeff you know it's i think president obama would be the first to say that it's tough to get a lot of meaningful change done unless you have control of the senate within your own party as well so you know i guess how do you think about the upside and the downside risks to muni investors if control in the Senate changes hands, and now all of a sudden you have New York's Chuck Schumer as the majority leader. So, and again, it's always dangerous to sort of forecast outcomes, but it's it, the probability would suggest that if Schumer is the majority leader in the Senate, it's a very high likelihood that Biden is also president, right? I think we can pretty much agree to that. It would be well, we don't really speak in binary saying there's no possibility, but if Schumer, if the Democrats win the Senate, it likely also means they retain the House and can likely win the presidency. So we're really talking under that context, I would argue. And under that context, what I would suggest is in terms of political implication, really from a policy perspective, would be the following. It's it's pretty clear and transparent from what uh, candidate Biden has proposed in the terms of taxes. You notice I always come back to taxes uh, as one of the reasons people consider municipal bonds. There's a higher probability under a Democratic-controlled Senate, House, and presidency that corporate tax rates would be upward adjusted. That, from a municipal bond perspective, is making the would make the asset class more appealing to corporations and banks. Uh, because one of the reasons, like retail investors in the United States, that they they like this asset class is the tax-free nature of municipal bonds. When there was corporate tax reform to the downside as part of the Tax Cut and Job Act, you saw a little less demand from corporations. And so under the scenario you're, you're, you're really proposing, there probably would be a reversal of that, more demand. Now, counterbalancing that, perhaps, was really the support I mentioned earlier from the demand side of the equation of retail investors liking municipal bonds because it's a reaction to the cap of $10,000 as the max you can deduct from your federal tax bill under, let's just call it a blue wave, Senate, House, and presidency under Democrats. Given that the the $10,000 cap really disproportionately impacted blue states, I think there would be a lot of pressure on Democrats in Congress and the presidency to roll that back. And that on the margin might actually reduce demand for municipal bonds under that scenario. Now, one, one point I do want to stress, though, it gets back to infrastructure. I think that really under both presidencies, a Trump or Biden uh, election, there would be finally some push for infrastructure build in a meaningful way. And so I, I would argue that is a positive for the asset class. But it's really a question of policy, how that infrastructure program would be directed 
to really reflect the values of the parties in control. Another way of saying that is if it's a Democratic-controlled Congress and presidency, the likelihood of more green projects, environmentally sensitive projects, some ways to provide some economic stimulus related to environmental and infrastructure spend would be part of their program. If Trump gets reelected, I believe that the pressure would be on the Democrats to find areas of agreement, as I think it's fair to say that the, the campaign right now, to a certain extent, is a referendum on Trump. And the leverage Democrats have to counterbalance that would be severely weakened if Trump gets reelected, suggesting that the American people have endorsed Trump for another four years. And I believe there would be incentives on the Democrats to find areas of agreement with President Trump. And one of the few areas that we can point to where they do have some agreement is on infrastructure. Now, the type of policies in terms of infrastructure bill that would come out under Trump's administration would not likely be green focused per se, but they would still be infrastructure just in other areas. So, Jeff, stepping back for a moment, you know, this COVID-19 pandemic, the subsequent economic turmoil it's caused, it's really wrought havoc on a lot of state, county and municipal budgets. I mean, funding sources like hotel and meals taxes gone, uh, sales taxes reduced substantially, a lot of streams of revenue um, under duress right now. And on the one hand, that might mean that states, cities, towns, counties might have to borrow more money now than ever. And thus the municipal bond market uh, is, is stimulated. On the other hand, they're probably a lot riskier to lend money to these days because of those uncertain income streams. So how perilous is the state of public finance as you see it right now? So I think all of your characterizations of this asset class, I would agree with, with the, the, the possible debate of the word a lot. And what we mean by that is there's still, it's a relative market. And so when we suggest that risks have increased in municipal bond markets, I don't think that there's any dispute in that. I mean, you would have to be completely ignorant to the status of the world and the, the global economy right now not to have an opinion that relative credit risk has increased. That's absolutely true, and, and municipal governments are no different. However, one of the really interesting things about this market is its longstanding history and some of the categorical differences between how municipal credit and governments operate versus corporations. First and foremost, this is a market that was established in 1812. And if you think about that, that might be somewhat recent in world history, but that is, that is ancient in terms of how we, uh, in terms of the history of this country. And since 1812, we can all think about the different economic, political, you name it, wars, pandemics, et cetera, that this market has been through. And year after year after year, it basically comes out with a similar conclusion. And we're not taking that for, for granted, per se. We're always contemplating new outcomes. But the historical precedents of outcomes in this asset class have been that municipal credit has been remarkably resilient under various economic scenarios. So what is that? how does that manifest itself really in terms of the impact of coronavirus on the market? Well, we're of the opinion that while there might be some increase in defaults, particularly in the highest risk arenas of the market, whether that's continuing care retirement communities, nursing homes, et cetera, the lion's share of this asset class will continue to service its debt on time and when due. The biggest risk we see from a credit perspective really are more downgrades and spread widening. And ironically, given the inefficiencies in municipal bond markets, a very inefficient market in the grand scheme of things, ultimately it could be a great validation of active management because in certain extent, security selections can become more and more important because you obviously want to buy bonds that are below their intrinsic value and hope that they accrete up to intrinsic value. And conversely, sell those that you think are overvalued. So it's a valuation type market in our opinion. Now, we do separate credit risk from the economic impact of, of Corona-19, and it's clearly just a, a major challenge. Um, unfortunately, over a million public sector employees have already been laid off. It's clearly stressed the finances of local communities, not to the extent where they're compromising debt service in general. But what likely is an outcome of this is if you are sending your child to public schools, this, the finances of public school systems, for example, might be more stressed. What is, how does that manifest itself? It manifests itself in 
higher fees and charges for services. It means that that PTO fundraiser might be a little bit higher. Does it mean compromising of debt service? We don't think that's likely. But, you know, um, embedded in, in Jack's question, I guess, was also the assumption that issuances may go up as a result of their kind of fiscal straits uh, at the state, county and, and local level. Is that a, an accurate assumption by us or uh, is that not really what you're banking on? Well, it's not even a matter of banking on it. It's already happening. But there's a lot of nuance in that observation. So if you look at year over year supply of municipal bonds, it's up. No doubt it's up. So on the surface, you would say, OK, there's a lot more supply, just basic math. A lot of supplies, there enough demand to meet that supply. How does that impact prices? Well, first and foremost, demand is really strong again. There's a lot of demand for municipal bonds, not only from U.S. investors, but as I suggested earlier, from non-traditional buyers of, across the globe. But what's perhaps even more interesting is the composition of the supply of bonds that are coming to market. Now, I've, I've talked a lot about the tax-free nature of municipal bonds, and that is the lion's share of the asset class. But what we're observing right now is truly something that's unique. And what we're observing right now is a significant increase of what are known as taxable municipal securities. And you think about this for a second. One of the reasons you've seen an increase in taxable securities is this. When an issuer, a government in the United States issue municipal bonds, it's a little bit more complex than what I'm about to describe, but essentially the IRS tests what the use of proceeds are being used for. So, for example, in Boston, where we all live, if the city of Boston is issuing debt for public schools, that is a project that the tax code wants to reduce the cost of capital. They want to make it cheaper for Boston because public schools are good. If, if, if for whatever reason Boston wanted to rebuild Fenway Park or what have you, the test might say, Great project. We love the Red Sox, et cetera. But, you know, we don't need to provide a market incentive of a lower cost of capital. Um, so that's be a taxable instrument. It basically says that as an issuer, you have a lot more flexibility to do whatever you want with the use of proceeds if you issue a taxable security. So long way of saying this, what you're seeing is a year over year increase in municipal supply, but it's coming in the form of taxable securities. In fact, if you look at the market composition right now, about 30 to 40 percent of the market this year is being issued in taxable form. Tax exempts are actually down about 8 percent. So what does that mean? Well, it means a couple different things. One, from a credit perspective, it's a good thing because, again, if you're an issuer who doesn't know what the world is going to look like six months, a year from now or what have you, come to market now. Issue those taxable securities, have the freedom to do what you need to do with the use of proceeds and lock in low rates. And so you're seeing that one of the reasons that, again, the longstanding history of this market has been so good from a credit perspective is issuers are actually more sophisticated than I think a lot of the public gives them credit for. The second is is really feeding demand from those foreign investors, foreign investors prefer a taxable instrument, all else equal relative to a tax exempt. Why? Well, because of the higher yield. Because it's a taxable instrument for the U.S. taxpayer. Now, think about this. If you're a foreign investor, you're, you're agnostic to taxes. You don't pay U.S. taxes if you live in Europe or in Asia, etc. They have tax treaty agreements with the U.S. All coupons paid gross on municipal bond. And so what they are really liking right now are these taxable instruments. They're not compromising credit quality. And they're getting relatively good yield. Now, issuers are responding to that demand and coming to market with that. So... It's a really good environment for issuers to come to market because, A, they can get access to capital to help uh, preserve their finances over the medium term. And two, they're feeding a lot of demand and new classes of buyers. They're diversifying their investor base. And ultimately, over the long run, that's a good thing for them. Jeff, if I could steer the conversation quickly back to, you know, a Biden outcome and a Trump outcome. Two things I want to ask you to read through those two possibilities, equal weighted, you know, not asking you to say which is more likely, just a Trump world and a Biden world. One, infrastructure. You touched on that. You know, infrastructure has kind of been dangled for a long time as like one area of bipartisan agreement. So is infrastructure more likely if Trump wins or more likely if Biden wins? And second, those foreign investors in American municipal bonds, which of the two outcomes do you think stimulates more activity from them, is more likely to stimulate more activity? Do they care who wins, or is the asset class 
equally attractive regardless of the outcome? Yeah, so uh, good questions all around there. In terms of the outcomes, I would say that likely just because of core uh, philosophical principles of Democrats versus Republicans that have generally a higher bias towards government spending, I think that the higher likelihood would be uh, on infrastructure Biden, uh, under Biden. But as I suggested earlier, I do think that there would be incentives on both sides, even if Trump does win again, for, for infrastructure to be part of their, their platforms and what they want to do. Again, I think there's market incentives and political incentives for both parties to, to have an infrastructure program. Now, clearly, we have to look at this somewhat cynically, and I don't want to be Pollyannish as someone who flies through, or used to, I should say, fly through many of our airports that are in, in less than stellar condition in our roads and hospitals, and there's just a lot of need for infrastructure building in our country, and we've been looking at it for years. So you have to look at this from a somewhat cynical eye, and you're, you're almost making the argument this time truly is different um, to say, okay, we're finally there. We're finally going to do that infrastructure program. But I do think a lot of the ingredients are in place under both potential presidencies. Again, infrastructure, if done correctly, can be highly stimulative to, to the economy. And two, from a political perspective, I do think that there is incentives on both sides to get it done. It's really a matter of what type of infrastructure. And that's where the devil is in the details, because, again, Infrastructure, if done correctly, we would argue, can be highly stimulative to the economy. If it's not, it, it, if it's not done correctly, it clearly could just be uh, sunk cost and just kind of a waste of money. Now, to your second question about what, what do foreign investors really prefer, from my experience, I haven't really uh, had much of that sort of feedback from, from overseas investors. I hmm. think they're one of the most interesting things about the, the foreign investor is how new they are to this asset class. And it's really exciting to kind of, you don't want to say you're not being evangelical about the asset class per se. Clearly, we have a lot of passion at Mellon about it. But at the same token, you're introducing a market that has been around for literally hundreds of years to someone who hasn't heard much about it. And so what we really try to do is de-emphasize the, the political nature of this asset class. Because again, if you look at the longstanding history, it's been through various presidential parties. It's been through various economic regimes. And the longstanding principle of it should stand up uh, no matter who is president. I think it gets back to where we began this conversation in terms of how a municipal bond is likely to perform or not perform under different economic policies, economic tax policies to be very specific in the general status of the U.S. economy. Um, so there's a lot of arguments to be made that tax-exempt municipals in particular tend to do relatively better when interest rates rise because the value of that tax-exempt nature uh, of a municipal tax-free security actually increases because there's more demand for tax-free savings when higher interest rates. And so maybe an investor overseas might be asking themselves this question. Which president would have what impact on the economy? And how does that manifest itself into potential inflationary concerns? If, you're high, if you think one candidate or one presidency may lead to higher inflation due to whatever reason, uh, higher economic output, et cetera, well, okay, maybe you, you have an interest in a certain type of municipal bond, more of a bias towards a tax-free instrument, which might do better. Or if you think that we are in a regime where rates are going to be lower for longer, Maybe you want to have a very long duration taxable municipal bond portfolio that tends to do better under that scenario. So the point is, there's a lot of nuance to this. It's a lot more complicated than I think most people would think about on, on the surface. And we've been really impressed with the sophistication of our, our foreign investors who, after some study of what is a relatively new market, they, they get pretty excited and interested in all the different options they can, they can employ in it. 32 flavors there, I guess. Well, you know, your comments <laughs> on politics and, uh, and, and the bond markets, I think, are a great segue to what was my last question anyway, which is, you know, you read again and again and again and hear again and again and again when you're watching the nightly news that the United States has never been more politically polarized than it is today. And, you know, I guess you know, maybe people are forgetting that there was a civil war fought here 150 years ago. But let's just stipulate to that assertion for a second. 
Polarization's never been like this before. So what I wonder is, does that political polarization extend to the muni markets? Like, do do conservative investors shy away from bonds floated by liberal cities or, you know, quote unquote, sanctuary cities? And do progressive investors, you know, balk at red state munis and, and that kind of thing? Has that has that happened? For the first time in my 22 year career, I actually just got that question from one of our investors the other day. Um, so I, the answer is yes. Um, I, I have not seen that in the grand scheme of things. It's not at all prevalent. But because ultimately, as a fiduciary and investors who are interested in, in making the best outcome for their portfolio, they try to separate politics from, from their investment strategy. But, and again, for, for the bulk of my career, really, the timing of your question is on the money. Uh, two weeks ago, I got that question or a suggestion. I won't say which state or city the, the investor preferred. But it was clearly on political lines. And so I have not seen that until recently. And it, it, it's interesting. Now, the follow up question to that is from a municipal sector perspective. Do we have any sort of objective analysis internally saying that, well, red states are run a certain way, blue states are run a different way? I think that in general, um, it, it's tough to draw a very different conclusion what we really do hammer on, though, is the credit aspects, regardless of, of, the, of the politics of the administration, either at the state or local level. Um, we look at, from an evaluation perspective, very key metrics in terms of leverage. We look at the economy. We look at the financial system. But most importantly, we look at management. And management, from our experience, will be the biggest indicator of the relative value of a municipal security. And in a very rare circumstance that a municipal bond has defaulted, whether it's a red area or a blue area, the one common denominator that we continuously see is poor management practices. You, you might have a terrible economy, but a great management system, you're, you, you have a good chance of holding up. You might have a stellar economy, but a horrendous management system, all you got to do is look at Orange County, California in 1994, AAA cal uh, economy, by no doubt. They had some fraud and poor management practices in their Treasury Department, and they went default. Um, so there really is a lot that goes into this. You're looking at a market of over 60,000 issuers. It's tough to draw and aggregate all the different nuances to one single statement. Um, but again, as investors, we're dispassionate about the politics. We really look at management. Um, but really, just to get back to your question, in this polarized environment, first time in my career, I saw that question. Um, it's not to say that it's going to be the last time. And the probability of it happening again, I guess, is just higher in terms of someone saying, you know what? I don't want any red. I don't want any blue, what have you. Very interesting. So sands shifting, but at the same time, uh, as we head towards November, um, excitement on either side in terms of the outcome between Trump and Biden in the election, Jeff Berger reading it all for us here on Double Take through a municipal bond lens. Of course, uh, states, uh, municipal bondholders, local, uh, you know, municipalities waiting to see uh, what impact the legislation that might be generated by the winner here uh, will have. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for taking us through all this and helping us read the elections through a muni lens. It's been very interesting. My pleasure. Welcome back to our special elections episode here on Double Take the Mellon podcast. Uh, and joining us now, as promised, is Richard Silla, Professor Emeritus of Economics at NYU's Stern School of Business. He has authored several books, including The American Capital Market and A History of Interest Rates. Uh, he has served as the president of the Economic History Association and the Business History Conference, and he's currently the chairman of the Museum of American Finance. Dick, welcome to Double Take. Rafe, good to be with you this morning. So, Dick, we're in the weeks and days immediately prior to the federal elections here, which are, you know, you could say a referendum on President Trump and his populist message as much as anything else. Looking back at re-election campaigns such as this, Professor, how well or how poorly have the markets, I guess, priced in the eventual results of a presidential election? And what have the markets told you, if anything, thus far in the election season about who might win and 
what ramifications we reasonably can expect on the economy? Well, I think first thing to say is that 2020 is a bit of an odd year since we're having a pandemic and, uh, and massive government interventions, both fiscal and monetary, to um, ease the economic uh, pain of the pandemic. Uh, and so this is an unusual year. And I would say that you know, so far in the year, a lot of people are surprised by the strength of the stock market. Uh, and the, the, I don't think it has that much to do with the election. It has a lot to do with the fiscal and monetary stimulus and also the hopes that we will get a vaccine. Uh, and so um, in, as I'm looking at the markets in 2020, uh, they haven't really reacted very much to the uh, upcoming election and, or, the, or the campaign as it's taking place. And the campaign itself, of course, is odd because of the pandemic uh, we're not seeing a, a normal political campaign with rallies and speeches and some speeches. Uh, so I'd say it's, it's an unusual year. But in perspective, uh, the markets, uh, you know, typically keep an eye on the elections. And uh, I, I think that in general, um, you know, most elections are, are not don't represent a major change. You know, people say the two parties are Tweedledum and Tweedledee, but there are certain periods when the economy's in crisis. Looking back, say to FDR in 1932 at the pits of the depression, uh, and uh, you know in 1968, the people are often saying that 1968, that was an election year, that that's a bit similar to this year in the sense that uh, we had this political assassinations. Fortunately, we haven't had that this year, uh, but we had riots in the streets, and uh, so and, and there was a lot of political turmoil. So there's some you you know most years are uh, normal elections. The Democratic candidate and the Republican candidate don't seem all that different, but there are certain years like 1932 and 1968 uh, where there is more of a polarization, I guess you would say, and more turmoil in the country. And you know the elections uh, and the stock market, uh, the stock market sometimes reflects the electoral outcome. Uh, looking back at those elections that you cited, so you know back in. Um... <clears throat> 32 and in 68, those were a little different, I guess, because in 68, you did not have an incumbent running for re-election because uh, Linda Baines Johnson pulled out, right? Um, but, That's right. But back in the 30s, that was an incumbent trying to get re-elected, correct? Herbert Hoover was running for re-election, and unfortunately, he chose the worst year of the Depression, uh, 1932, to be run for re-election. And the interesting thing about that year, you know, the Dow Jones fell 89%, I think, from its peak in 1929, and it reached its low in July 1932. And the, the low point of the Dow happened to occur right around the time the Democrats nominated Governor Franklin Roosevelt of New York to be their presidential candidate. And the markets went up after that. I think one, uh, <clears throat> one, you know, people were ready for a change, I think. And, uh, uh, when it became clear that Governor Roosevelt was going to be the Democratic candidate, the markets bottomed out and, and started to rise. And, uh, and even in the banking panic after uh, Roosevelt came into office, you know, he had to shut down the nation's banks for a week or two in early 1933. The market did get back to that 1932 low, even though the country was in a, still in major economic crisis. So I think that that, that election, you know, uh, uh, somehow or other, the market sensed that a, a change in the form of a uh, Democrat Roosevelt being elected would uh, be an improvement in the economy, and the market started going up from right around the time Roosevelt was nominated. Professor, what about the dynamic here that has shaped up between President Trump, who, as uh, some of our pre-show communication indicated, kind of a rarity in that he actually surprised the markets in winning the presidency? Often the markets aren't terribly surprised who ultimately ends up winning in November. But we did have, you know, an exception in that regard in 2016 in, in several ways as Trump took office. Here he is against a Joe Biden that you could characterize as, you know, a very strong contrast, hardly Tweedledee, Tweedledum dynamics, as you talked about, where the market might say it's, you know, it's a, it's a relative toss-up as to what we can reasonably read into the outcomes, and they'll be about the same, regardless of which side of the aisle comes out on top. Here we have pretty strong, you know, Historical exceptions, it would seem to me, from a distance to that sort of analysis that the elections won't make that much of a difference. Plus, we have a president in Trump who 
through such a strong populist streak, has really implemented some policies that have really had a lot of economic significance, from tariffs to our posture on the international stage, to how we manage and regulate foreign companies operating in the United States. Do you see here any parallels, this sort of unique alchemy between these two, or maybe it isn't so unique, um, that strikes you in the past? Well, I think you're right that uh, uh, Joe Biden seems to be like a conventional candidate. You know, he's been an American political figure for 40, 40 to 50 years now as a senator from Delaware and uh, vice president under President Obama from 2009 to 2017. So I think he's a conventional American politician. And President Trump is obviously a very unconventional American politician. Uh, Going back to the election in 2016, I think that I and, and many other people sort of relied on the polls to say that uh, Hillary Clinton went into the election uh, with a with a lead, and, and we thought she was going to win. And uh, I, I'm told that even President Trump was a little surprised that he won that year. Uh, but it, you know, it didn't seem to have a negative effect. I do remember that great gurus like Paul Krugman of the New York Times said, "If Trump is elected, the stock market will go into a deep dive." That did not happen. It actually rose a bit after Trump came in, and I think people were, you know, surprised that he won. And the markets didn't see, you know, they didn't view unfavorably the fact that it was a surprise outcome in that election. And of course, one of the reasons I think you didn't mention before, but one of the reasons was that Trump made a large uh, corporate uh, tax reduction in, in, in his uh, first couple of years in office, and, and that was a great boost to the stock market. An interesting thing about President Trump is that you know, he seems to rely on what the stock market's doing as an index of how well he's doing and uh, the surprising uh, uh, bullishness of the market uh, since the uh, down uh, the, uh, the after the crash in uh, February and March. You know, President Trump says that that shows that I'm really doing a great job. That the fact that the stock market is doing so well, and he did a lot for the stock market. I think with his corporate tax cut. Does history tell us anything, Professor, about after large tax cuts and and you know positive market reaction to that? What tends to happen to the markets when the possibility might present itself as it does with Biden? He's unveiled his tax plan that some of those may be reversed, um, but there are all kinds of other offsetting reasons that you might think the market might be positive on a Biden presidency, less volatility, less concern about the day-to-day -day news cycle. You know, Does that offset the concern that those tax cuts might be reversed somehow or, or lessened? Um, well, I think, yes, I, I think that Biden has said almost that uh, we can expect some higher taxes, although in good Democrat fashion, uh, he, he phrases it that it'll, it'll be mostly on the very well-to-do, you know, not, not ordinary Americans. Um, and so that's uh, we can look forward to that. But I think the markets are also sensing that uh, President Trump has had a kind of foreign policy, you know, uh, rattling the sword against China and uh, uh, with his tariffs and things like that. And, and I, I think, uh, you know, business leaders are uh, many business leaders anyway that do a lot of business around the world are, are kind of worried about Trump's foreign policy stance. And so they may think that Biden will get us back to, you know, better relations with our trading partners and uh, uh, even countries that disagree with us on uh, what the direction of world politics should be. Uh, so, you know, I think maybe they're willing to say that Biden would be okay even if he raises taxes on us some, uh, if if he uh, um, you know, improves the international climate for trade, you know, reverses some of Trump's tariffs, uh, which are unpopular with many businesses. And, uh, you know, the get tough with China policy, uh, you know, American business has done a lot of uh, business in China, and uh, uh, that seems to be threatened now. And so I think, you know, businesses are weighing the higher taxes against a more stable international economic environment. And uh, so I, I don't think there's a strong business uh, uh, faction behind either candidate this year. They're just weighing the pluses and minuses of each one. Well, okay, so let's move away from the markets, I guess, to a certain extent to the economy uh, or, you know, other aspects of it, because everyone always says it's the economy, stupid, right? I mean, that's the great cliche that came out of the 90s. Um, but I am curious, you know, we're in a super low interest rate environment right now, and you're the interest rate history guy. So I would ask, is there any correlation between interest rates 
and presidential elections. Like, do lower rates favor Republicans seeking re-election? Do they favor a Democrat, you know, combating a Republican seeking re-election? What can we read well, into this? Well, there are certain elections where that makes a difference. Uh, for example, back when uh, I was a young man, we had recessions in the 1950s and 60s. And uh, if you think back to the election of 1960, that was John F. Kennedy versus Richard Nixon. And that happened to be a, a, a recession year, and the Federal Reserve had, uh, as many people say, uh, often causes the recessions by reacting to inflationary fears by raising interest rates, and that pushes the economy into a recession. And in the election of 1960, uh, the economy uh, was in recession, and Richard Nixon, after he lost very narrowly to John F. Kennedy, said that it was the rise in interest rates that caused the recession that caused me to lose the election to Kennedy. So yes, I think uh, interest rates can have an effect on elections. Uh, and, you know, the, of course, the, you mentioned the history of interest rates. And, you know, I've seen a lot of uh, range of interest rate history just in, in my uh, adult lifetime. For example, in 1980-81, we had the, the highest interest rates in U.S. history, and now we have the lowest interest rates in U.S. history. Uh, and, of course, the election of 1980 was coming at a time when interest rates were very high and that was when Paul Volcker was uh, trying to break the back of the you know the very strong inflation even double digit inflation by 1979 and 80 uh with very high interest rate policies and that certainly didn't help Jimmy Carter it helped Ronald Reagan win the election of 1980 so yes i mean the answer is that interest rates uh, can have uh, an effect on uh, the economy and the uh, election prospects of particular candidates. This particular year, with very low interest rates, I think they're low for reasons that don't have much to do with uh, – they're low in part because the economy is – been in lockdowns of various, you know, we saw the recent GDP statistics saying that, uh, uh, you know, the, the, at an annual rate, the economy was collapsing around 30 percent. Uh, it actually collapsed about 9 percent. But if you take that 9 percent for the second quarter and run it out, for, you know, if it collapsed 9 percent for the next three quarters, it would be down 30 some percent for the uh, year. Um, so I, I think the economy is very weak right now, and that explains the low interest rates. Uh, you know, in a normal environment, uh, low interest rates might uh, help a, an incumbent. But in this particular environment, I don't see that the low interest rates are, uh, in any sense, uh, helping President Trump. And Professor, the U.S. standing in the world has certainly changed in the past 40 years, as have our alliances and relations generally. Thinking back to other periods, perhaps, when the U.S. sort of recoiled from international entanglements, uh, what did that mean for investors? Have we had test cases of the, the moment we're in? Well, I think the late 1930s, uh, you know, when when uh, Hitler was rearming Germany, and of course World War One actually started in 1939, uh, we had a low interest rate environment then, and it was because of uh, the you know the whole 1930s were sort of a depressed decade, and so interest rates were low in the in the late 30s and. Uh, the economy was was a bit weak. You know, there was a pretty good recovery under Roosevelt in his first term, uh, but then we had a sharp recession in 1937-38 that pushed unemployment back up to double digits. So going into World War II, we had a low interest rate environment, and uh, uh, you know, I think the stock market wasn't doing a whole lot then. I mean, there was the international climate. You know, the war breaking out in Europe and after Pearl Harbor, of course, at the end of 1941, we would get into the war. But uh, there were people in the 1930s, America Firsters, Charles Lindbergh was one of them, and there were some radio uh, people, Father Coughlin, you know, they were, in general, they were trying to keep the U.S. out of uh, international entanglements. And so there was a, a divide in the country then about what our policy should be, and uh, President Roosevelt had to manage that. Uh, and uh, I think he did a pretty good job of it. Uh, uh, actually, the war, uh, to some extent, helped our economy because, uh, you know, the European countries that were going to war in the late 1930s, they placed a lot of orders in the U.S. for materials, which helped our economic recovery. And, of course, when we got into the war itself, uh, then uh, there was a strong economic recovery. But we also had wage and price controls and uh, so the stock market didn't do a lot in World War II. And in fact, uh, what I always told my students who think st stocks always go up, 
uh, you know, the peak in 1929, the Dow Jones peak in September 1929, uh, was not reached again until 1954, a quarter century later. And in our own lifetime, we see that the Japanese stock market peaked out in 1989, and now it's 31 years later, and uh, it hasn't gotten back to that old peak. So uh, the war was good for the American economy, but it wasn't so great for the U.S. stock market, which just kind of marked time in World War II. Uh, but then it boomed after the war. Professor, do you, do you study the uh, uh, commodities markets much? Or is it mainly just this uh, a little bit? Because I am wondering what those markets are telling us uh, as we're leading into this election as well. Well, I, I, the commodities that uh, I keep an eye on regularly are, are precious metals, and uh, gold has uh, in, uh, recently set a, a new all-time high at over uh, uh, two thousand dollars an ounce, and. Uh, in August, the silver market is moving up rather sharply, too. And I, I interpret that as a sign that some investors, uh, you know, precious metals are supposed to be a hedge against inflation. I think some investors are interpreting the uh, monetary expansion of the Federal Reserve, which has been very uh, strong, uh, you know, kind of uh, money supply growth year over year recently has been in the 20 to 30 percent range and uh, the fiscal stimulus is coming in there as well I, I think that the people who dabble in the uh, precious metals markets are sensing that uh, these are inflationary policies and so uh, it seems to me most of the market hasn't really reflected that yet but uh, uh, certain parts of the market are acting to me like they sense that there's more inflation on, ahead of us uh, uh, because of uh, uh, the, the stimulus policies to fight the pandemic. You mentioned the stimulus policies, Professor, and I wonder if history is a guide there either. You mentioned, you know, sort of the, the pull for American goods and services during wartime from um, from abroad. Here we have, you know, the U.S. government, um, you know, stimulating the economy to a degree that I don't know if it's without precedent, but certainly in my lifetime, it's it's a rather dramatic $6 trillion, I think, cumulatively, being thrown at coronavirus relief. Um, how does that shape how we should think about you know market implications and the elections, if at all? Well, I think that we have to see what the effect of these policies. Yes, it is about $6 trillion. The Fed balance sheet went up about $3 trillion earlier this year from four, like a $4 trillion balance sheet to a $7 trillion balance sheet. And, of course, that's uh, what's behind this rapid growth of the money supply. And then Congress has come along with, I guess, about $3 trillion so far of uh, uh, spending, you know, the payroll protection programs and, and all that. Uh, and uh, uh, so, you know, that that's a lot of stimulus to an economy. And uh, um, I think, it, you know, the, the, the markets should be probably thinking a, a little more. I think maybe, what I'm saying is that maybe the rise in precious metals prices uh, should uh, you know be viewed by just investors who don't invest in precious metals as telling them something about the outlook for future inflation? Uh, it hasn't really you know percolated through the whole financial system yet, but uh, I think the precious metals are telling us that uh, there may be more inflation ahead of us, and that will not really be good for the stock market. I think. Well, Dick, I'm, I'm sure you've been not wanting to hear this question, but you know you've seen a lot of elections, and you're you've studied even more than you've seen by a long shot. And so, I'd love to put you on the hot seat and just say, what's your prediction for this election? Um, I my prediction is, I mean, I'll go up with the polls, which you know that was the wrong thing to do uh, in 2016 because uh, Mrs. Clinton was ahead of. Uh, uh, Donald Trump in the polls, and, and he eked out a narrow victory over her. Uh, I think this year the polls are showing uh, that uh, Mr. Biden has a, a stronger lead over President Trump, and uh, I'm thinking that you know there are uh, enough worries of uh, what the condition of the country is right now. You know, President Trump can't be blamed for the pandemic. He might be blamed a little bit for how he managed it. Uh, but uh, I think, uh, you know, I think this year may be a little bit of a year like 1932, where the economy is tanking, uh, 
uh, it was probably worse in 32 than it is this year, and in part due to the fact that uh, we've had so much stimulus. You know, Herbert Hoover did a little bit of stimulus, but not all that much. So the economy was in bad shape in 32, and and Roosevelt looked like uh, a person who might change things. I think maybe this year. Biden doesn't look like so much of an agent of change, but maybe uh, uh, in short, my prediction is that right now, you know, uh, some months before the election that uh, uh, that Biden would probably win. All right. So regardless of the outcome, sounds like history very likely to be made in a, a strange economic time. And we thank Professor Richard Silla from the Stern School at New York University for helping orient us on the history of moments that compare and contrast with where we are right now, heading into November. Professor, it was a pleasure to pick your brain a little bit here on Double Take. We wish you the best. Thank you. I enjoyed it, too. Mellon Investments Corporation is a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation. Any statements of opinion constitute only current opinions of Mellon, which are subject to change and which Mellon does not undertake to update. This podcast, or any portion thereof, may not be copied or distributed without prior written approval from the firm. Statements are correct as of the date of the material only. This recording may not be used for the purpose of an offer or solicitation in any jurisdiction or in any circumstances in which such offer or solicitation is unlawful or not authorized. The information in this recording is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any purchase or sale of any specific security. Some information contained herein has been obtained from third-party sources that are believed to be reliable but the information has not been independently verified by Mellon. Mellon makes no representations as to the accuracy or the completeness of such information. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee returns or eliminate risk in any market environment, and past performance is no indication of future performance. The indices referred to herein are used for comparative and informational purposes only and have been selected because they are generally considered to be representative of certain markets. Comparisons to indices as benchmarks have limitations because indices have volatility and other material characteristics that may differ from the portfolio, investment, or hedge to which they are compared. The providers of the indices referred to herein are not affiliated with Mellon, do not endorse, sponsor, sell, or promote the investment strategies or products mentioned herein, and they make no representation regarding the advisability of investing in the products and strategies described herein. Please see Mellon.com for important index licensing information. CFA and Chartered Financial Analyst are registered trademarks owned by CFA Institute. For more market perspectives and insight from our teams, please visit www.mellon.com.